So I saw this thing this week on Facebook. So Facebook is, as some of you may know, a well-known social media. <laughs> Sorry, go on. <laughs> well, it is kind of a cesspit. And, and uh, this thing that I saw, which I shared with you, was a picture of a woman from Limavady and her husband on so their balcony. So Limavady is in County, County Derry um, and in the north of Ireland. And uh, this woman went to a Catholic school there. Not that that makes the slightest bit of difference, but her and her husband were posing in a mockery of the death of George Floyd, wearing I Can't Breathe t-shirts uh, and laughing on their balcony. And um, someone posted it on Facebook, presumably one of them around their friend groups, thinking it was hilarious. And what it got me thinking of was something that we touch on in today's episode. Uh, today's episode is a chat with amazing harmonica player Don Mead, who has spent a long time in New York City, is uh, speaking to us from uh, Upper New York State. And we do touch on what's happening in the United States at the minute. Uh, we recorded this on Thursday, the 4th of June. And uh, what we talk about there at one point is um, Irish complicity and racism. In the, and um, I think it's just important to to point that up. I, you can't, I just saw this thing on Facebook. And it doesn't really matter where it comes from. It doesn't matter if it's an Irish person or a Scottish person or... It's just foul, you know. And uh, why am I telling you that? I'm telling you that because myself and Darren have been talking about this and feeling very strongly that we wanted to register how supportive we are of the Black Lives Matter movement and everything that they stand for. In the end of the day, we're we're two privileged white guys that live in a in a lovely little suburb tucked away in the corner of Australia. So, on one hand, feeling help us to help a cause, particularly one of such magnitude. And then realizing that there's a lot of listeners that tune into this each week, and a lot of these listeners come from the same backgrounds, same racist backgrounds that you and I come from. And to to speak to people that have the same background as us, hopefully, then there might be something that resonates with with with, you, with the listeners. And if we didn't mention it here, I think our silence would speak a lot louder than the small bit that we get into here. Absolutely. Yeah. And so to today's episode of the Blarney Pilgrims podcast. Don uh, is a incredible player, by the way. So uh, just we were mentioning the politics up front, but we're going to have to skip straight to the colossal player. And and person and persona he, he is, um, you'll hear within the interview, he changes between a lot of different harmonicas within the, the chat. And it's just incredible the I don't he's so offhand about it. he's yeah. so offhand about it as well like when he says oh I just slipped this thing this little lever over and changed plates in the, and and he's describing the mechanics of how you actually play these tunes on a harmonica now like I struggle to play a four note <laughs> a four note solo yeah. on a harmonica I mean this is it's incredible it's yeah. like, my, my so dad he, was here and he was asking me some questions and I was telling him about that like slipping the, yeah, the slot. and it, I could just see the eyes kind of glaze and he was like oh this guy's like the real deal. So like, it yeah. reminds me of the of the um you know when you hear Stevie Stevie Wonder playing the harmonica? So that incredibly articulate lots of notes. Lots and lots of notes and kind of shifting I, I mean it's incredible. I, I can't believe that anybody can play tunes. Irish tunes on a harmonica. But here it is and it's brilliant. So let's get into it, I reckon. All right. Enjoy. Sorry, stealing your word there. Uh let's see you now and uh I guess I'll play a couple of jigs. Uh the first one I played for years before I discovered where it came from. It's called The Haunted House and was composed by the late flute player Vincent Broderick. Uh, 
And the second one's an old tune called The Lark on the Strand. Don Mead, welcome to the Blarney Pilgrims podcast. Oh, very pleased to be asked. That was, I don't know, that was pretty incredible. This is unfortunately one of the things that are really lacking when we do it over the internet like this and we're not face to face. Myself and Dom were sitting here can't, the whole way through, like just looking at each other, smiling, and we're just looking into the microphone like we're looking at you. It's so good. <laughs> uh, how do you do that? I mean, <laughs> seriously, that that's... well. Um, you kind of realize that uh, I'm playing a chromatic harmonica. Yeah. And the way it's set up, it's got two reed plates, uh, and they're offset by a half a step in, in, in pitch, which is to say it's very much like a button accordion, where you'd have one row in, in B and another in C, for example. This one happens to be one row in G and one row in G sharp. So the ornamentation scheme is the, basically the same as you would do on a two-row button accordion. You have options uh available that are exactly the same so i modeled my approach to it to uh accordion playing really so where did you i mean who did you first hear playing tunes like that on the harmonica eddie clark uh eddie clark was a man from from originally virginia county cabin who lived uh, most of his life in dublin and in 1976 he came over to the states uh and he was part of a group uh at a gigantic festival to celebrate the bicentenary of the United States, bicentennial, as we'd say here. And uh, he and uh, Maeve Donnelly, a fiddle player, 
recorded together with a couple of great singers, uh, Sean Corcoran from Louth and uh, let's see, uh, Maury Nagonal. Um, and it was a recording called Sailing Into Walpole's Marsh. And it was actually the first record on the Green Linnet label, which was a big uh, producer yeah. and distributor of, of Irish music back in the, in the uh, 80s, and up to the 90s. So I had previously played the harmonica, but just the simple little ones, you know, and was a bit frustrated by the lack of, of range and, and the inability to hit the the in-between notes, you know, the black keys on the piano, so to speak. Uh, and then I heard Eddie Clark, and it just completely knocked me over. I said, wow, I have to learn how to do that. And I thought I did, but it was many years later I discovered I was doing things really rather differently than he did. <laughs> he had a, a C harmonica, uh, and the key to his ornamentation scheme was um, to hold the slide in. There's a slide on a chromatic harmonica that lets you switch between the two reed plates. Now, the, the uh, right. key to his ornamentation scheme was to hold the slide in, play on the, on the C-sharp reed plate, and when he wanted to make an ornament, to let the slide back out again and then quickly put it back in. So it would sound like this. Um, but most of the tunes that he played uh, seemed to be in the key of G or in the, using the same notes as the key of G. So I assumed he was playing on a, a G chromatic. He wasn't at all. He was playing on a C chromatic. So he was in a different position. That sounds uh, Sorry, go on ahead. So, so uh, I, in, the, in the harmonica world, you would refer to what he did as second position playing, which is, which is the position that blues players adopt when they play on a harmonica. So if you want to play the blues in... In E, for example, you, you play it on an A harmonica because it shifts the notes into a different position. It g- gives you more scope for bending notes. Uh, and you have a f- and you have a flattened seventh note, right? Well, but Eddie was playing music that wasn't always in that position. But see, he, but he could use the slide to produce that F sharp that uh, would be not in the. Uh, it would you know to to play in the key of G major, you need that F sharp. What's well, there on the chromatic? You just have to use the slide to get to it. So I can never quite figure out why I couldn't reproduce exactly what he was doing until Mick Kinsella, who's a great player uh, in Ireland, it, it told me, stupid, he's playing in second position. <laughs> but by that time, I'd been playing a long time in, the, in my own way, which uh, the first position means if you're playing in G, you play on a G harmonica. And there's great advantages to that because you have a chord there. There's only two chords in the chromatic. Uh, okay, like... G and C in this case, uh, although I'm playing a half a step sharp because I'm playing on a, on a higher reed plate to make the ornaments. Right. Uh, but if you play as Eddie did in the key of G, you haven't got that G chord. Uh, yeah. So if you open up your mouth to honk on a chord, it's going to come out, if you blow, C. It's going to sound a little bit odd. Um, and, I, and I realized after Mick told me what the story was, why I couldn't sound like, exactly like Eddie Clark. <laughs> now I just sound like me. Um, so, what was your first exposure to the music generally? Then, like, like where did you first hear Irish music? Do you know? Uh, certainly, uh, my parents were uh, from Boston area, Waltham and Cambridge. Uh, and to get back to the immigrant generation, you have to go back uh, to my great grandparents. Uh, and it's, in my case, it's a, really a mixture of Irish, Scottish, and English. But they were raised in Irish Catholic neighborhoods and identified with the Irish part of their their ancestry. My father's father, Norbert Mead, uh, was all Irish uh, in, his, in his ancestry. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but I didn't really grow up there. I, I was, we moved out to the California when I was about two and a half. So my fir- earliest memories are in West Hollywood, where we lived then, and later on in uh, Torrance, nearer to the beach. So my only connection to Irish music was a few snatches of songs that my mother knew, um, like Who Threw the Overalls in Mrs. Murphy's Chowder and that sort of thing, <laughs> my, my Wild Irish Rose. Right. And my father bought a lot of LPs uh, of the, the folk music of the day, uh, the commercial groups like the Lime Lighters, the Brothers Four, you know, the Kingston Trio sort of thing, but also some, some higher class stuff. And, and among the higher class stuff, what I thought was the best was the Clancy Brothers and Tommy Makem. So that was the Irish music I knew when I was a child. Right. Now, so, so did you have that um, Clancy Brothers and Tommy Makem Life at Carnegie Hall album? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> The first one we got was called The Boys Won't Leave the Girls Alone, which is, right. I think, uh, a really fine recording. Mick Maloney told me a few years ago that it was he was told by one of the, another of the Clancy's that was the first record they really practiced for. <laughs> it was uh, They were now on Columbia, the big big label, and they, and they had to put a little more attention to it. Uh, right. And there was, there was some harmonica playing in the group. Pat Clancy played the harmonica, and I, but I was really taken by Tommy Macon's tin whistle playing. Yeah, and, um, and, and it was interesting because the it's, it's interesting about the um, I, I've always kind of wondered about the makeup of that band because t- Tommy Makem was a very serious came from a very serious musical background in terms of the the Ulster song heritage and all that, right? Sure, so, sure. His mother, but he also had uh, instrumental music in the family. I think Uncle yeah. Jack played the Ilan pipes, and uh, so he was the the guy who brought traditional instrumental music or some bit of it at least to the group sound. Mm-hmm. And, and, and had the real traditional head, yeah. And it was—I remember as a as a sort of teenager. Um, and the reason I'm thinking about this, just uh, a friend sent me a picture just the other day of me and him at Slane Castle in 1984 when we went to see Bob Dylan play there. And uh, and I remember reading the interviews with Bob Dylan. There was a big interview in a magazine called Hot Press at the time, and he was talking about um, the influence of the Clancy Brothers. On him in the New York scene in those um, early sixties. Uh, oh yeah, he, he Dylan was uh, he. Uh, well, I wouldn't call it plagiarism. He he borrowed and adapted a lot of folk music, and one of his prime sources was Liam Clancy. I'd say. Yeah, he he, he was definitely. Um, uh, what's the what's the bird that that steals things for its own nest? Is it a, <laughs> is it a cuckoo? Jack. Jackdaw. The, the jackdaw, cuckoo yeah, lays its, a, he, its, its eggs in another, another nest. But he's, he was more of a jackdaw, I'd say. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Mag, that's, magpie. That's fair enough, yeah. He he wasn't quite... Um, God, what's the term for that? There's a there's an ornithological term. A brood parasite, yeah. Now that's, See, that's the cuckoo or, or yeah. the, the, the brown-headed cowbird we have around here. I shoo them away from my bird feeders. Yeah, the cowbird is a very interesting story. But anyway, that's I guess that's off the track. But. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So, so you were hearing this, and and you're growing up. Um, whereabouts in California were you were you going? Like, what 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 was bringing you there um, in terms of your 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 father's work or your mother's work? My my father uh, he had uh, interrupted his uh, schooling uh, for a stint in the Air Force during the Korean War, and I was born actually in an Army hospital in Washington D.C. area just before he got out of the service. Then the family went back to uh, to Waltham, where my grandfather was. Uh, and then dad finished up his, his college, uh, but, and he wanted to go and get a, a master's in business administration uh, at the University of Southern California. So we moved out uh, to California, 
my mother's mother at the time, uh, she was on her third husband there and he had a language school. My, my mother, uh, taught some Spanish at the school, which is, I can't believe anybody learned anything from her. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, and, they, and they had a place to live courtesy of, of uh, my mother's uh, grand, uh, my mother's mother's <laughs> husband. Uh, so he finishes up his school in there and we're living in West Hollywood. That's my earliest memories. And then uh, in 1960, uh, they bought a house in the city of Torrance in an area called the Hollywood Riviera, very grand real estate uh, name. It was about a mile from the beach. It was a great place for to, to grow, grow up. There was no uh, no Irish ethnic connections there, but it was a wonderful place to grow up. Mm-hmm. And what about your mom? Was Were you hearing um, other kinds of music around the house? or? Oh, yeah. Uh, my father mostly bought, was the one that bought the records, but there was a little of all kinds of stuff. Uh, Broadway show tunes. You know, I remember listening quite a lot to uh, the original cast albums of uh, My Fair Lady or Camelot or uh, Guys and Dolls, things like that. In addition... Wait, wait, wait. So My Fair Lady with Rex Harrison? Yeah. Yes. Ah. Camelot with Richard Burton. Oh, my God. You know what? We must have had the same... We must have had the same record collection. Yeah. I mean, like, there's, there's definitely these staging posts. I remember that. I would. I remember that album so clearly. The Rex Harrison and My Fair Lady and Audrey Hepburn was in the movie, but someone else did the voicing for the yeah. for the album, I believe. Yeah. Uh, um, no, we, possi- possibly Julie Andrews. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you're hearing all these different things. I mean, one of the things I want to touch on as we progress through this conversation is the maybe um, some of the political side of this, because, you know, the music of uh, the Clancy Brothers and Tommy Makem, when I was hearing it in the 80s, the early 80s and the the mid-70s in in Ireland, suddenly it was kind of uh, political. It wasn't just a cultural artifact. It was sort of... Yeah, at the the time that I was hearing it, these rebel songs were more or less a romantic uh, attachment to, to a past struggle. There wasn't anything going on in 1963 that, you know, would correspond to the troubles that came later. So singing a rebel song in 1963 was a whole lot different than singing one in 1976. Yeah, yeah. Well, so um, do you think we could have another tune and then let's kind of dive into some of that political stuff and a a little bit more about your progression. Does that sound okay? Let's see, what do I do? Uh, Some reels this time, man. This is a different harmonica. This one's... uh, a big one with 16 holes on it that a friend gave me recently from back in the 60s. The 64 chromonica, so it's in C and C-sharp, and I'll be playing on the C-sharp side of it.
Okay, Don, that that was an amazing couple of tunes. What, what were they? I, I recognized the first one, but I couldn't put a name to it. Uh, the Green Mountain would be the name of it. It's it's a first first cousin to the Maid Behind the Bar. Um, yes, that's why I was. Yeah, it's not quite the Maid Behind the Bar. Yeah, the, the names kind of kind of go interchangeable. I think in the O'Neill's collection, uh, the tune that's we call the Maid Behind the Bar is called the Green Mountain or something like that. I, I, I'm not quite sure, but they, they're obviously related tunes. Um, mm-hmm. But that one I took a fancy to because of the first LP recorded by Mick Mulcahy, a great accordion player from uh, Abbey Field in County Limerick. It was a solo recording uh, that was done, uh, I think, in Harry Bradshaw's uh, living room in Dublin. <laughs> no no backing or anything. So uh-huh. I picked up a lot. And of, then the second one? Oh, it's called um, Rip the Calico or Tear the Calico. And there's, there's various theories about what that means. Uh, calico was a common uh, cloth for, for dresses, so I don't know. Going back to, um, so you're, you're growing up in um, West Hollywood? West Hollywood, right. At the time, it was an unincorporated part of New York, uh, not sorry, Los Angeles County. It wasn't part of the city. It's right. uh, in more recent years become a city in its own right. Right, and and how long were you there? Like, was that was that a good chunk of your childhood then? Uh, from a, two and a half to uh, let's see, uh, I guess uh, five maybe. Uh, anyway, I was in uh, kindergarten in in uh, Saint Vincent's in, in West Hollywood, and, and uh, in the first grade uh, in, in uh, Newton School in Torrance. So. Mm-hmm. That, and, that and, and where did you go after that? Well, my father got a job that moved him around a bit. We we spent uh, a year and a half or two years in Seattle, and then Orlando, Florida, and then Wichita, Kansas. And I think about that point, my mother put her foot down and said, uh, "No more of this." <laughs> it was good for his career, but it was terrible for for growing up uh, when you're always a new kid in class, and we'd be moving in the middle of the school year and that sort of thing. So. That wasn't the, my favorite part of growing up, but it, it did expose me to a lot of parts of the country. Well, so um, what was your dad doing? At that point, he was a management consultant specializing in aerospace. So he would be going to some place like Seattle where Boeing yeah. would have a contract with the Air Force and uh, they would be over budget and behind, that sort of thing. And he'd be trying to uh, get things back on track. So we were in, in, in aerospace towns. I, I, I what sense I mean it, it's probably hard to think about this at the time but like when you look back on it now I mean did you have any sense as you're moving through the country about the difference in the country from place to place oh definitely um, it was most apparent when we moved from Seattle to Orlando this would be 1963 and this is just before the passage of the Civil Rights Acts, which did away with explicit Jim Crow laws. So I remember being shocked, seeing the sign saying, whites only, colored only, that sort of thing. You know, the, the, the drinking fountains would be segregated, to, never mind you know, the schools and, and, and beaches and that sort of thing. So it was, it was quite a shock. My parents were, were quite liberal about that and, and very much in favor of civil rights. As, uh, so we were uh, taught the wrongness of it as soon as we saw it. Mm-hmm. Uh, um and and uh sorry just just bear with me a second don would you yeah yeah sorry i i i'm not quite sure why i've 
I've kind of stumbled here, but um, I'm wondering if it's just that um, when you're talking about that, um, if I'm being honest, uh, the top of my head at the minute, we're recording this on the 4th of June, and probably the top of mind for you too is is what actually is going on in the US right now. Yeah, right? very much so. And I just found myself suddenly thinking about the passage of the Civil Rights Act in, in the mid-60s and civil rights acts, I should say, in the mid-60s and where we are now. And um, yeah, uh, it's well, pretty yeah. <laughs> challenging. For those of us who, who lived through the 60s and remember all the struggles then and, and uh, uprisings and, and race riots and, and uh, police brutality and all that, it's, it's just very discouraging to realize well, much has changed, but how much has not? Yeah. So Orlando, Orlando, so that was Orlando when you where you really started to your first kind of big noticing of the of the differences between the states. Is that just going back? Is that what you had said? Yeah, pretty much so. Because uh, I mean, we were in in Seattle in a suburb, and we had been in Los Angeles in a suburb. It wasn't a whole lot of difference other than the climate, <laughs> you know. Uh, I mean, so I then how long were you... I'm sorry. No, I was just going to ask how long you were in Orlando for then. Uh, let's see, through half of third grade and... Oh, oh, no, all of third grade and half of fourth grade, I guess it was. Yeah, so 63 and 64, during the time that uh, the Kennedy assassination happened. Yeah. And then, and then you moved to Kansas, and then... Kansas Back is a to... whole other... <laughs> yeah. It was flat and windy. <laughs> All right, so the, the movies haven't lied to us completely. Yeah, not entirely. Yeah, Miss, missed yeah. out on tornadoes. Uh, just after we moved uh, from Kansas back to uh, Torrance, uh, a, a tornado blew through the neighborhood and took the, the roof off the church where I'd recently been confirmed. <laughs> we missed that. Just, I'm trying to get a um, a kind of a chronological idea here. So, by the time you're in in Kansas, what age are you? Because Kansas, I would have been uh, uh, ten, about ten years old, uh, going on eleven. Uh, I would have had my eleventh birthday just after we got back to Los Angeles. Yeah. Back to Los Angeles, and is that pretty much where you where you landed then for? Yeah, for extended time? period. So from from the age of of uh, just shy of eleven to when I got out of uh, the university at UCLA, I was uh, in. Uh, either at home in, in uh, Torrance or living in West Los Angeles near the university. Yeah, and and are you playing music then at this time? Are you starting to get well, into but, that? Yeah, but not not Irish music. The only Irish music I would yeah. have I would actually have uh, <laughs> been playing Clancy Brothers songs on the harmonica. <laughs> My mother gave me a harmonica when I was about ten or eleven. I'd say uh, must in, in California. So I, would, I guess it would have been eleven and. I had listened to those Clancy Brothers records for years, so those are songs that were in my head, and some of them translated pretty easy to, to playing on a little harmonica. But in addition to that, of course, I was listening to all the, the music of the time, uh, Bob Dylan and, and uh, all the, the pop music. Uh, my sister Mary was a year older than me, uh, was the one going out and buying the 45s. I remember we had a, a, a little uh, uh, suitcase sort of thing full of... Uh, a 45 RPM records, we'd buy all the, the stuff that came out in 1966, 67, 68. Uh, so anything that was on the charts then, I'd be listening to that. And uh, I was playing the trumpet. Uh, I had picked that up 
in uh, Kansas, uh, a friend of mine played a saxophone in, in a, he was learning in, in the school. So I asked my father, can I get a saxophone soon? He said, oh yeah, why not? We went down to a music store and uh, saxophones were $15 a month to rent and trumpets were $10 a month to rent. So my dad said, do you care if you play the trumpet or the sax? I said, no, <laughs> we've got a trumpet. Uh, and I played on that uh, in the school, uh, learning music, read music and, and play simple stuff. And then we moved to LA and back to LA and, and uh, my parents invested in, in uh, a music teacher who'd come out once a week to see me, Norm Bailey. He, he played with the, uh, the Lawrence Welk Orchestra. <laughs> ah, right. <laughs> I do know who they are. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so and, Mr. So, Bailey, did, yeah. And, and what was that? What was that like with Mr. Bailey? <laughs> well, I wouldn't have been his best student. I wasn't really putting enough time into it, uh, so I don't think he was particularly impressed with me. Uh, there was what, uh, what was it, distracting you? Were you were you into sport or? Not really. I was more of a reader, uh, but I just was not good about practicing. Although I did like to play, uh, and uh, later on I joined a marching band called the Torrance Area Youth Band. And we would uh, dress up in our costumes and, and enter parade competitions. And uh, we weren't all that great. We, we, we were always far behind the boys from Long Beach who were, who were the good band. <laughs> oh, those Long Beach boys. <laughs> um, so so I, I wondered about, you know, there's so many people like um, that I met when I was living in the States who had the similar sort of childhood experience to you in the sense of moving around a lot. Um, were you were you glad to get back to LA, or did did the did the moving around give you a sense of just being able to adapt to wherever you're at? No, it it, it gave me a sense of always being an outsider, and not being able to adapt. Right. Uh, so. Uh, Welcome to my world. Yeah. <laughs> well, you were there first. I was never uh, an athletic sort, so I mean, a guy who's good at football or whatever can always make his way in, in a new environment. He's you know accepted as something that everyone respects. But I was uh, a band geek and a, and a guy with glasses who read a lot of books, <laughs> so not the not the popular sort. It's it's funny how I've probably it's funny how I've probably romanticized as someone who is hasn't been a an instrument player for like 35 years i always thought if you can play an instrument you can go anywhere you can you i, I always likened it to what you said about sport you can you can find like-minded people you can you can get in and and, and make friends that way so only it, it, only you're telling me that i tell him i'm wrong yeah well <laughs> and here when i when i got out of the elementary school and, and, and the system that, that we had it was uh kindergarten through eighth grade in one school and then move on to a four-year secondary school, South Torrance High School. So it's 1968. I enter South Torrance High School. I have a very short crew cut. I play the trumpet. And within a, <laughs> within a year, I'm playing the guitar. My, my hair is down on my shoulders. <laughs> so yeah. I was yeah. clearly trying to fit in somewhere else. Yeah, 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 for sure. Dropped out of the marching band scene and was trying to learn how to play... Uh, uh, Bob Dylan kind of things and I kind of also gravitated toward country music at that point uh, the first paying job I ever got thanks mom she had a friend uh, got me a job at the local library and they had a collection of LPs uh, including Hank Williams and Merle Haggard and I really loved that stuff so I learned a lot of that music uh, accompanying myself on the guitar and put on a phony country accent 
something something you'd know all about in, in uh, Ireland or Australia. <laughs> yeah, and I'm I'm well versed at putting on a phony country accent myself, <laughs> but that's for another time. Uh, yeah. So, uh, um, what was attracting you with with that music? Is it just the narrative, the, the narrative um, element of you know Hank Williams or Burl Haggard or? Um, it was simple music to, to learn. I mean, it's like three chord songs, uh, and they were good songs. Uh, uh, yeah, I, you know, I remember um, just a, a couple of weeks back um, seeing a video with uh, John Prine when he was talking about writing one of his early great songs, and the phrase he used when he he says, "When I finished that song, I knew I'd broken into Hank Williams' casket." <laughs> do you remember what song it was i think it might have been hello in there right oh, yeah, and, yeah 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 well yeah. another another one yeah. i like was was lefty frizzell and that's courtesy of my father who with his eclectic taste had picked up a lefty frizzell album when we were living in wichita so i learned those songs as well with your kisses that sort of thing oh beautiful don do you remember I mean, it's interesting that you said putting on the the kind of the cowboy accent but i it's interesting for me to hear that kind of as someone who is not from america and i suppose it shows my blind spots is that was did you not feel ownership of those songs at, at the time because obviously you have an american accent and you, you would you would sing naturally to my ear in that well, in that no. sound anyway no, to me, to me, it was a bit foreign. It was as foreign as Irish accents, and I was never any good at those. <laughs> so, I could, if I sang along with the Clancy Brothers, they, it still sounded American. But I could put on a, a reasonable facsimile of a, a Southern or Western uh, accent appropriate to Merle Haggard or Hank Williams or Lefty Frizzell. Would that be a common? Would that be a common feeling for singers that are not from? that country the country music area or country music I area I, I don't know uh, I mean all the, the singers that I respected uh, and, and liked to listen to were the real deal you know to, to me this is this has always been a problem um, it's possible when you play instrumental music to assume a, a, another accent I mean I think I play Irish music in a thoroughly Irish accent if you didn't hear me talk you wouldn't know where I was from you know uh, but there's something about genuine country songs that require a genuine country person. And something about genuine traditional Irish songs that, to me, are wrong without the accent. And it just seems incredibly false to adopt uh, an Irish accent for the purpose of trying to sound real when you never will be. <laughs> so yeah, I, the, it's the Irish... I'm sorry. No, 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 go ahead, please. The, the Irish songs that I would gravitate to and still sing would probably be more in, in the... The comic vein, where you know it's you're not trying to sound uh, I don't know. It seems friendlier to me to to, to to sing an Irish comic song than to try and be a Shandos singer or something like that. It's so interesting that you have mentioned singing America to my mind American songs and not feeling like you're authentic enough to to deliver on that. And as an as an Irish fella who grew up there for for 20 years and then I've lived the way like recently I've been trying to to sing again and I've been singing American songs and old time tunes with 
uh, probably a, a ridiculous American accent for a few years now, and I've <laughs> I really haven't it hasn't it hasn't registered with me in that regard at all. But as soon as I try and put on and sing in with an Irish accent, I feel so hokey. I feel like I'm I'm putting on a voice to sound like something. To, to, not something I'm not, but it's it's so it's it's comforting to hear you saying that as a as an American singing American songs, not feeling that you are there, and I'm I'm going through exactly that at the, at the moment, and it's interesting with the with playing an instrument like you can. Well, I wonder why that is. You can you can play with a a style and. And a, no one thinks you're a phony. Even with an do. accent. <laughs> no, no one thinks you're 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 you know a ridiculous phony if you're playing Irish music yeah. in an Irish style. But if I was to stand stand up in a pub in Ireland and and try and sing in an Irish accent, people would laugh at me, <laughs> and rightly so. I I do think uh, I I remember seeing something uh, by the Scottish singer Dick Gochan who sings in his own very distinctive Scottish accent and his his. You know, he's got a very distinctive voice in every regard, and he's got a very distinctive voice in terms of the way he plays as well. But I think what he was saying was that you know you can pretty much sing anything you want, but don't try and imitate the accent of Luke Kelly if it's one of his songs or right. Hank Williams or that's, anybody else. That's fine but, and good if you if you're him though. Like if you, <laughs> but it, no, I mean, if you have a very strong accent, and Don, I don't know if you were aware of this, but myself and Dominic had a I don't have an accent. Once. <laughs> we, myself and Dom did a, a an episode once. It was just me and Dom ended up having a chat, and when in that, I complimented Dom on his singing because he sings with his accent, and you've got a very definite accent, and that's where I feel. A lot of singers probably feel that they can't sing whatever they want because you can't help but imitating it. It's a very, very hard thing to achieve is to sing in your own voice if you have a an ear that changes to act like I go anywhere and my accent changes. <laughs> Maybe that just says a lot about my insecurities rather than. <laughs> well, no, it, it it is interesting that in in actual life of moving around so. Living in Scotland first on, and then um, living in Seattle, and now living here, the um, I think there's a linguistic term. I think it's called accommodation, where mm-hmm. you soften your own linguistic quirks to try and be understood, yeah, and you it, it, adopt it the intonation of where you are. You know the the Seattle kind of um, thing of just uh, um, ending a ending a sentence on an upward cadence and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah, it happens unconsciously. I know as my. My family in California think I don't any longer have a California accent, whereas uh, everybody in New York thinks I do. Uh, so. Right, yeah. And you, you certainly don't have what I would have considered even a New York state or an East Coast accent. But No, it's, it's, it's never really changed, I think. Uh, yeah. I, I well, do a terrible should... job imitating New York accents. <laughs> so should we have another tune and then sure. uh, talk a bit about New York? All right. Does that sound uh, good? Just... Yeah, sure. Just for a, a change-up, um, I'm going to play a, a little harmonica. This is um, what they call solo-tuned. It's like half half of a chromatic. There's a difference between even one reed plate on a chromatic and, and the little blues harmonicas, which have some missing notes there. And so, so is this is this so is this one of the um, when you're talking about um, having two reed plates? Um, for mm-hmm. anyone who doesn't know harmonicas, if you look at a chromatic harmonica, there's two lines of parallel square holes, right? Well, there's there's one long uh, yeah, there's one line of holes, but it's subdivided. Uh, there's a yeah, slide yeah. that that cuts yeah. off 
one or the other a set of reads, depending on whether the slide is pushed in or, or left out. Right. So and then, the, and so what you're playing now is is it's is like the melodeon to, to the button accordion. It's it's, it's, a, it's like a, a one row button accordion only. It's a harmonica. <laughs> Right. Okay. So, that's, uh, that's and I'll play something. Uh, the, the most famous harmonica players in Ireland were, were, the, were the Murphys, uh, the late Phil Murphy and his sons John and Pip, who are still going strong. Uh, great style. Um, they played uh, tremolo harmonicas, the ones with two reeds for each note, tuned slightly apart, so you get a, like a, a wavering sound. So this was not a tremolo, but it, it is a, a, a single row one, so to speak. So I thought I'd, I'd try and make up a tune in the style. Of the Murphys, and it's, uh, this one is, is one of mine called uh, the Fiddler's Elbow, which I made up because I had my left arm in a cast for a while, and I could only play with harmonica with one hand. You need two to play the crack, so I had to play this one. Where's the where I start? Just in case we end up moving away from uh, the mechanics and the the workings of harmonicas, so my my dad is a harmonica player and he's he's done his best to describe different parts of it to me over the years, and I I, I have an understanding of it, but I, don't, I have a question around. One thing he's said to me was he he actually went from the harmonica to the concertina, and as he recalls, as he says it when he picked up the concertina it, it it made sense it was he said all, all of a sudden all these tunes started to fall out of it because it was a harmonica split in two and and one on each end now is that something you have have you ever dabbled in that world because there is such a crossover yeah i, I a year or so ago i acquired a uh a beat up old honer two row accordion it's it's really sort of a double melodeon. It's got one row in the key of A and one row in the key of D, so you can't play it in quite the same style as, as the Irish ones. It's it's kind of a, a more of an English folk music box, but it's you know it, it let me get started on it, and uh, right away it felt uh, the push and pull of it was exactly what I was used to. The only problem I was having it was that I'd be breathing in and out along with it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> every time I pressed in, I'd be. You know, uh, I've gotten over that. Uh, I, I'm never going to make much of an accordion player. It's 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 um, it's similar mechanically, you know, and everything, but it's it's bulky and and, and awkward for me. Uh, whereas the the harmonica is is uh, well for me anyway. You know, at this point, second nature and and, uh, and 
you know, there's no push and pull. There's no wrestling with the instrument. You know? And I'm sure that you can just pop it in the inside of your jacket. It's a, an added bonus. <laughs> <laughs> there is that. It's a stealth instrument. You can bring it into a session. And, and if you don't feel like playing, no one has to know you have an instrument. Yeah. Right. Well, it's, it's funny, though, because uh, um, it's quite physically taxing. The, the, um, the, depends. Is it the harmonica? Yeah. If, yeah like, you play it. Well, if you get, if you get out of breath. It is to listen to when I'm playing it. If you, if you get out of breath, you have bad technique. That's the way. That's what it is. You know. I'll, you know how on the accordion, you got a, an air valve on your left hand. Whenever you get, you get too far out, you can press it and go back in. You know. Or mm -hmm. if you get too close in and you need more space, you can press on it and draw it out. Well, the nose functions the same way when you play the harmonica. Uh, if you're playing a tune that has more draw notes than blow notes, you'll often feel yourself getting too full. But the way to get past that is when you do get to the blow note, you can expel some of the excess air through your nose. And that prevents you from getting uh, out of breath, I think. Once you master the idea that you can use your nose to, to either take in air when you need it or, or get rid of it when you, when you want to, uh, then it's not so taxing. You make, you make that sound so easy. <laughs> well, it's, it's, like, it's, 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 it's not exactly circular breathing. That's a technique yeah. I've never figured out. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. But you don't but, need to but, on the harmonica because half the notes are, are draw notes anyway. <laughs> right. Okay. I, I, it's just, um, it just has always struck me that it, it was a lot harder to play the harmonica than I thought it would be. And, um, and after I'd finished playing something, and this is just playing along with songs, right? So somebody's, somebody's singing and I'm just kind of doing a little solo or something um, on a blues harmonica usually. And, um, and I'd always be completely knackered at the end of it. It's because you're dancing so hard. I'd probably yeah. <laughs> too, too much pool going at the same time. So Don, when, when did you end up in New York in the, in the run of things? Oh, okay. So I, I graduated from university in 1976. And at the time, I was a political activist. Uh, and the organization I was with wanted me to go to New York to uh, write for their newspaper. It was called the Workers' Vanguard. Oh, it may have been the Vanguard, but if you look behind, there was nobody there. <laughs> it was, <laughs> no workers. It, it, was, it was an awfully sectarian little group. And uh, it, uh, all I, the best I can say for it is it got me to New York. <laughs> Whoa. So I left that I left that behind after a few years and um, decided that I would make a better contribution to society, uh, helping uh, to uh, promote Irish traditional music. So there was um, a place on 14th Street, on the West Side, called the Eagle Tavern, and they had a session every Monday night. They had a concert every Wednesday. They had a dance every Friday, all Irish music. Uh, and there was a Saturday American old-time bluegrass uh, concert series as well. So I started making that my second home. Um, and that's where I really encountered traditional Irish music. Uh, there were singers. There was instrumentalists. Uh, and the best of them was a couple of older gentlemen, uh, immigrants who had come over in 1948. Uh, Patty Reynolds from County Longford on the fiddle. And Tom Doherty from uh, Donegal played the Melodian. Uh, and those guys set the standard. And Tom's Melodian was the loudest accordion I've ever heard in my life. It was an old Walters uh, made to be heard in a dance hall before the age of amplification. And mm -hmm. he, could, uh, he, could, he could make a sound on it. <laughs> so y'all had fallen behind Tom when he was playing. 
And Patty Reynolds had a marvelous, a subtle style. Uh, his versions of tunes were always really intricate, always the best. And he was very friendly, uh, willing to have people come over to his house and show off his, his fiddles and play old reel-to-reel -reel tapes of, of Lado Byrne or Michael Coleman. Uh, and you know, I, I really latched on to Patty for a few years there and learned a good amount of music from him. Right. Um, so at the same time, there was these Wednesday concerts, uh, which were run at the time by a fellow named Dan Milner, a singer of note, actually. He's still very much alive and well. Um, but uh, he ran it as a folk club, which would not always be Irish. to be English singers as well. And, uh, he had, because of his job, had to give up running the, the concerts. And a neighbor of mine down uh, the street on East 12th Street in the East Village named Mike McQuaid was Nilan Piper. And Mike took over running the concerts, and I became his uh, assistant, uh, helping him uh, move the sound gear around. Uh, types, I was a typesetter at the time, and I was uh, typesetting his uh, publicity stuff. So I, I got involved in, 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 in helping to run the concerts, and when Mike left town, it took it over. So I started running concerts every week at the Eagle Tavern. Uh, we moved them eventually to Friday nights. Uh, it ran for a good long time uh, until the bar closed. At which point, uh, we moved the concerts downtown to a place called the Blarney Star on Murray Street near the old World Trade Center. And we carried on there for 10 years until that bar changed hands. That would have been 2003. And since then, uh, up until the coronavirus chaos, uh, I was running concerts once a month at Glucksman Ireland House at New York University, which had been set up for me by uh, Mick Maloney, who's a professor at, at NYU. And with these concerts that were coming through, we, we, were they um, you you were getting acts over from Ireland fairly fairly um, regularly? Yeah, I mean, it's a small small scale thing. It was uh, uh, a room that couldn't hold more than uh, you know eighty or ninety people, and then they they actually closed it down to about sixty people at the Eagle because of fire laws. And at the Blarney Star, you could similarly hold about a hundred people if you if you tried hard. Uh, so it wasn't a, a big gig, but it was big enough for a traditional singer or a soloist or a duo or three or four piece, you know, if you want to push it at a small stage. And over the course of these years, uh, yeah, a, a lot of traditional musicians of note would pass through New York and, and play at the Eagle or the Blarney Star. I'm sure the... It was some fantastic, fantastic nights. I'm sure the Eagle would have been some good years. Like in the 80s, there was still a lot of immigration from Ireland um, to New York. Yeah, yeah. So, we, right. Uh, was there a difference when immigration kind of tightened up? Absolutely. Uh, the biggest difference for me in the music scene in New York between the time I started getting into it, uh, say 1982, uh, and now, is that that older generation of traditional musicians, guys like Patty Reynolds, uh, his, his American-born friend and partner, Andy McGann, another great fiddle player, uh, Mike Rafferty, uh, flute player from East Galway, Mike Preston, a flute player, used to play the Tullock Cayley Band, Joe Madden, Joni's father, a great box player from East Galway, uh, Jack Cohen, the great flute player, Martin Mulhair, uh, he's still with us but not playing anymore, but you know, most of these guys are gone now. Uh, and th while there were uh, good immigrant musicians who came over, they weren't, you know, not in the same numbers and uh, they didn't. They didn't have the same background. I mean, when you went to talk to, to Patty Reynolds and, and, and pick up tunes from him, you were talking to a guy who grew up in a farm in Longford uh, in the 1930s. Uh, it was a whole different, 
different way of, of acquiring the music, you know. Uh, and then when he came to New York, he latched on to Lad O'Byrne from Sligo, the greatest fiddle player of his day. Uh, a man who didn't record much uh, officially, but was revered by all the fiddle players as the, as the top man. And so it, it, it was a class of musicianship uh, and, and, a, and genuine traditional background that will never be seen again. Uh, I'm not trying to put down any of today's musicians who are, in many cases are as technically adept, if not more, than the musicians of, of those days. But they're musicians of the modern world who grew up listening to rock and roll and everything else. They didn't grow up on a farm where, if they were lucky, they got 30 minutes a, a, a week of, of traditional music on the radio. And, and music was learned uh, firsthand without a tape recorder from older people in the area, you know. So being able to listen to and play tunes and put on concerts for the likes of Mike Rafferty or Patty Reynolds or Andy McGann, to me, was uh, a real privilege and a way of connecting to an older world. Yeah. And it can't be done anymore. Were you, uh, were you ever lucky enough to record any of the, the concerts you put through? Oh, I have stacks and stacks of cassettes that need to be converted to digital format. Some of it has been done already, uh, but I, and I'm, I've, I've lost a lot of it. I've, there was concerts I wish, I, I don't know what happened. You know, I'd, be, I'd be lending tapes to people, not getting them back or misplacing them. So I've got a lot of, a lot of good tapes, yeah. Yeah, I, just, I love being able to, um, just to, well, it, it, it's a bit of a time machine, isn't it, really, if you, if it, if you can get the right concert and it's recorded nicely and you, you get a bit of the, the room in there as well, you can really get, get to visit a place during a, a time. What was the what was the eagle yeah, like? I'm, I'm, I'm sort of trying to conjure up, conjure up a picture. Can you can you describe? You walk into the eagle. What are, what are you seeing? Like, all right, it was it was a bar uh, in an area that had once been a solidly Irish working class uh, neighborhood, uh, very much connected to the West Side docks in the Hudson River back when there were uh, commercial docks on the Hudson River. So it would have been a working man's bar from the 19th century on. Um, you walk in. It was a rather narrow place along the right side be a long bar, uh, which actually was a remnant of the original bar, which would have gone all the way to the back of the, of the, of the building. In the days that I was there, they had chopped it down so that oh, the, the, only the, the bar was in the, in, the, in the front of the building. You'd walk past this, this uh, bar into a back room. There was a, a small wooden partition, and it widened out in the back. There was a kitchen behind that, and then the back room was basically a, a square uh, and the, the musicians could assemble uh, in, the, in the kitchen as the green room. Uh, I would set up the, uh, the sound desk in the, in the front, as, as just to, to the side of, of the door that, as, that you pass through to get to the back room. So I could both take money for, at the door and <laughs> do the sound. And there was a, 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 an entrance just to my right that would put me behind the bar where I could get drinks <laughs> uh, for the, the musicians or myself. So I, I, it was possible to run it as a, as a one-person operation or, or two at the most. And, we, and were uh, you making a living at it? or? Oh, no, no. Yeah. So, so what were you doing as well then for, for work? If you, weren't, if you weren't, uh, weren't any longer part of the, the workers' vanguard and you deserted the, the working classes? <laughs> <laughs> well, the workers' vanguard wasn't paying me either. So uh, no, I, when, I, when I moved to New York, uh, I, the first job I had was with the health department, going around trying to get... Uh, parents to sign permission slips to give vaccinations to their children uh, in the Bronx. 
And then I got a job uh, with the post office at nights uh, sorting mail uh, and uh, taking the mail out of the back of the sorting machines down to the loading dock and putting it on the trucks to go to Brooklyn. Uh, did that for a couple of years. Then I uh, uh, became a typesetter in the age of the photo typesetting, uh, early computerized photo typesetting. Uh, did that and then took a course in computer programming and for the last, what, 35 years have been uh, a computer programmer for insurance companies. Right, right. Most of your time, were you were you on the in and around the Lower East Side? Is that where you were living when, while in New York? I lived in various places. Uh, my first uh, accommodations was in Washington Heights, northern Manhattan, and then up in Inwood, the very northern part of Manhattan, which was uh, an ethnically diverse neighborhood that had a strong Irish presence, but one that was declining as the old immigrant generation moved up and out. Um, then uh, I lived down in Tribeca uh, when it was. Uh, mostly cheese and egg warehouses <laughs> long before Robert De Niro had established a film studio yeah. there and so forth. Uh, but I never had my name on the lease in that spot. Uh, and so eventually had to leave and lived uh, very briefly in the South Village and, and got thrown out of that one. <laughs> then I was living in the Bronx with some Irish guys. I'd met the Eagle Tavern for uh, a few months and then uh, moved into an apartment on East 12th Street in the East Village uh, and lived there for like five years, I think. And my then wife uh, and I, she, she got a job, she had a job rather with New York University, uh, which eventually allowed her to get an apartment in uh, a university building in the middle of the village. Great, great spot. Uh, we parted ways, unfortunately, and then uh, I lived in the Midtown Manhattan area for a few years and then uh, now uh, have an apartment on Grand Street on the Lower East Side, but I, these days I'm spending most of my time in a in a country house up in in Ulster County, which is where I'm at now. Yeah, okay. is that now my geography of the states is pretty poor? Is that near Catskills? Yes, it's part of the Catskills. Um, Sullivan County is the Southern Catskills. Ulster is the middle, and Green County is the Northern Catskills. Green County is where the historic Irish resort town of East Durham is which is where for the last quarter century we've had a, an annual Irish Arts Week. Uh, this year it's been suspended because of the, uh, the COVID-19 uh, situation. Um, but uh, I, was, I was involved in that from the beginning. Uh, it would be a, a summer encampment where people would get rooms in, in one of the, the fading Irish resorts in town uh, or camp out uh, or live in a van. <laughs> uh, and we'd have classes in the day and sessions and dances and concerts every night. Uh, I'd be interested to kind of dig dig into the setting up of that because I'm sure it wasn't a, an easy process. But would you would you mind if we could have a, a tune before we get into it? Oh, of course. All right. Let's uh, switch it up again and um, play uh, some slides maybe. Uh-huh. What, are you, what are you gonna play on? Uh, this is going to be on the the '64 harmonica, the the, the big C harmonica. Uh, as, as you know, the, the chromatic chromatic has the slide where it lets you switch before, between the two reed plates. The way Eddie Clark played, he'd hold the slide in so he can be on the upper of the two reed plates to make these kind of ornaments. Make that rather. Uh, it's I found it easier in the hand to disassemble the mechanism, flop the slide over, and reassemble it. So now. 
if, when the slide is out, it's on the C sharp plate. When it's in, it goes down to C. But this tune, I think, these tunes, I don't think require the slide at all. <laughs> we'll see. I, I, and I don't have any names for them. Uh, it's just, I'm, I'm pretty good with names, but slides and pulp is, no. <laughs> all right. I think the second one is, is called one of a couple of different slides called the Brosna slide, but the first one, I don't know. there but we'll let it go uh, that was that was great thank you um I, i'm wondering about uh, this period of the 80s and into the 90s then so um are you still active politically during that period because that is the in the thick of the reagan the reagan years and uh, well i would have gone to the odd demonstration that's about it all it came down to i think i've been kind of burned out on, on constant activism and plugging newspapers and writing propaganda you know so uh when you were an activist what were the what were the sorts of issues i I just want to touch on this briefly just to get a sense of like what were the kinds of issues that were that were like really hot at that point it was still cold war time Uh, well i suppose we were more concentrated on on international issues uh uh, as well as uh trying to influence uh local labor uh things 
mean, it was a small organization of mostly middle-class white people, so <laughs> you weren't going to have a huge impact on anything real. That was part of the problem with it for me. It was all a bit uh, in the air, you know, not in the ground. Um, well, I, I did. I did once go and see a see um, see someone who said, you know, I don't. Uh, it was a comedian who says, you know, I don't mind liberating the working classes, but I don't really want to drink in the same bar. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, which was kind of it was just pretty funny, you know. It's, I, uh, I, it kind of got to the it gets to the heart of that. It gets to the heart of something. Well, that was never my it. problem, you know. Uh, no, one, one of the things I really liked about the Irish music scene was that it, it did give entree in, into a working class folk tradition. I mean, the people that I most admired and, and wanted to hear play uh, were not uh, accountants and, and lawyers, uh, although there were some of those, of course. You know, it was people who had had uh, working class jobs, or still did, and the, and the neighborhoods in which the music was played, we'd be up in the Bronx, uh, you know, it was some pretty gritty areas, uh, but that didn't bother me. This was the real thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um you, you just said you had mentioned just there that the music, the role it played. How much of a role was the music playing within the activism? Oh, back when I was in, in the political world, uh, yeah, very little. Very little. I remember writing a song about uh, the uh, civil war in El Salvador that I sang at a, a rally in uh, Washington D.C. It was about as, as far as it went. There was a, a very serious organization <laughs> which didn't give much time for music. Any any musical uh, stuff I did was more or less just to, to amuse myself. When you say very serious organization, in 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 what way? I mean, humorless. That's <laughs> what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, not serious in the sense makes Don something something. <laughs> not, not, not not serious in the sense of like taking up the gun and all that. No, no, this, there was none of that going on. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, it, it's it's funny though that you say that because I, I was um, I remember being on a plane once and and stumbling across a Norwegian film called Comrade Peterson, which I've never managed to see again, and it was about uh, a couple of young socialists in Norway, um, in the Norwegian socialist movement in the nineteen seventies, and and it was a pretty hilarious depiction of a an utterly humorless uh, organization advocating for social change. And uh, and the movie itself just um, turns into something of a of a kind of comedic um, comedic affair, but but it, but again, it gets to the to the heart of something. I mean, I guess the, the reason I'm I'm kind of wondering about this, and I'm sort of um, tramping around in the in the undergrowth here a bit, and I and I apologize for the vagueness of it, but um, but I can't help but but still kind of zoom forward to where we are now and. Um, how you look on activism that you were involved in then and what do you see going on now in the United States in general and also in, in New York itself where you have Bill de Blasio as a kind of radical left mayor and yet you still have a, an incredibly militarized police force and incredibly militarized responses to public protest. Whatever credentials de Blasio had in some quarters as a leftist are thoroughly discredited now. Uh, he has taken the side of the police in a, in a way that's completely inexcusable uh, to me. Uh, when the, the, the first mass protests were breaking out in the city and the police were uh, 
basically looking for confrontations when they could have been uh, just accompanying the marches and make sure that nothing happened. And they, they, they were uh, running police cars into demonstrators, clubbing people for no reason, ganging up on people. They get somebody down, and a bunch of cops would, would rain baton blows on the person on the ground, that sort of thing. And he got a, 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 in, in the papers the next day and said that the police had acted completely appropriately. Uh, his own daughter got arrested <laughs> mm-hmm. just for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, they, they, they would give you no chance to, 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 uh, to, to move out of the way. It's just like, you know, this is a riotous assembly. You're, you're all, mm-hmm. you know, must get away and then grab whoever they can and arrest them. Now, I have not been down there to take part in it. I've been up here 100 miles away, so I cannot claim any moral high ground on this. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm just an observer at this point. Uh, I wouldn't wouldn't want to claim any expert knowledge of what's going on there, but it's a, it's a, it's enormous, broad-based movement, multiracial. You know, that's that's the most heartening thing to me, is that this is not all-black nationalist, you know, groups. Uh, it, it, it is people rising up for Black Lives Matter and for racial justice, but with open arms for everyone that will take up that cause. Yeah, one of the things that I find really striking from my own sort of personal growth, if I can say that, is just that the arguments about the racist nature of American society from day one, if there even is a day one, right? But the the kind of white American project that that systemic racism is built in it's built in the same as it is in Australia. It's built in. It's there from the very, very beginning. And so the idea that it's just this sort of overlay that you can just lift off and everything will be fine is just not credible. And that's why what what you see when you see that behavior of, of police and police are exonerated all over the country when they brutalize uh, communities of color. The reason that's happening is because it's so baked in and the reason that it's happening in cities like Seattle, where there's a huge number of uh, quote unquote progressive white people who vote for, you know, um, generous levies for public libraries and consider themselves to be utterly uh, progressive and yet are profoundly uncomfortable about the idea that they are actually beneficiaries of a system that has, and I include myself in this, that, that has systematically oppressed communities of color yeah uh you know and it's 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 disheartening to me that so many irish americans who have made it you know in the sense of getting out of the working class into the suburbs uh, have adopted uh you know a a white racist attitude you know that you, you wouldn't get anybody who was Ku Klux Klan openly racist, you know, no one thinks they're a racist. <laughs> but if you think the main problem that's going on right now in New York and around the country is riots and, and looting, and you're missing the fact that thousands of people are out there peacefully protesting uh, and demanding social change, then you just have blinkered yourself off from reality in, in a way that it reflects uh, a white racial viewpoint. Yeah, and the... The day and age of, of sensationalization and, and how the media gets gets shared just is fuel to the fire because it's, it's exactly that is what happens. That's not it's not the clickbait that people want. They don't want to hear about peaceful protests. 
well that's i don't think so anyway and i'm just thinking of my own human nature like what what news stories grab you to be honest when you see something well i, I saw a good a good one today uh, someone had put up in facebook um an article about how at the time of the 1916 Easter Rising in Dublin, it was an absolute orgy of looting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the impoverished people of the inner city Dublin had a chance when the police were on the run and the cop and the, and the troops as well for a while there. Uh, every shop was broken into, things were taken out. Now, and how incredibly unpopular they were well, well, yeah. at the at the time too. Well, but, 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 but my point was. Who, looking at that now, would say that the main story of Dublin in 1916 at Easter was looting and rioting? You know, no, you'd look at the bigger picture. <laughs> it, was a, it was a political and social struggle. And that was what the important story was. The looting was something that was happening around the edges. And that's, that's the case in, in New York and around the country now. Yeah, it's not good that people are breaking into shops, especially if they're looting small businesses that you know, are going to be wiped out because of this uh, you know, that's, there's no one can defend that. And, and the, the people who are marching in their thousands are not doing that and are not defending it. Uh, but it is not the main story. Do you think there's a reluctance? I mean, I kind of ask you to speak for the Irish community, but like, um, is there a reluctance amongst Irish America to to own up to their own racism? Because the, the racism goes way back. It goes way back to... Well, yes, yeah. It's, it's not just the, since they've become suburbanized. I mean, the, the Irish ethnics of, of New York City working class have been fairly racist uh, going back to the days of the Civil War when there was a riot, uh, the biggest riot ever in the city of New York in 1863 uh, was a white riot uh, against the draft that turned into a, a racial pogrom. Uh, where uh, a mainly Irish working class mob would burn down an orphan's asylum for African Americans, hang African Americans from their lampposts, you know, and they were all very openly uh, racist in those days in a way that people aren't now. Uh, but it has a long history. The Irish trying to get ahead by stepping on somebody below them, you know. Isn't there a isn't there a book called How the How the Irish Became White that uh, looks at there is uh, uh, Ignatiev. Uh, that, that's uh, one one version of the story for sure. There's a lot of books written about the time. Uh, if you're interested in a, in a novel, there's one called uh, "The Banished Children of Eve," which is set uh, in the, the world of uh, minstrel music. Uh, the Irish working class in, in, during the period of, of the yeah. draft riots. It's a very good book. Um, I don't know where to go next with this. You know, I, <laughs> we could leave the politics aside for for a moment. I think you know. Uh, well, I I think that's I think that's right. But but I'm I'm really glad that you brought it up or that we were able to talk about it. I mean, I know it's awkward, and I know it feels it feels awkward to me, and it feels uncomfortable, and I have this knot in my stomach, and I'm sure millions of people do, right? When when they're talking about it, and I um, it makes me feel kind of personally uncomfortable. But as um, someone said to me the other day, well, you know. Harden the fuck up, as they'd say in Australia, you know? Like, you think you're feeling uncomfortable? How does every African-American man who goes out of his door to walk around the neighborhood feel on a daily basis, yeah. right? So, but, you know, um, it, anyway. The, the music for me has, has sort of floated above all this. Uh, there are people who think that you, could, you can only... Your, your music has to reflect your politics. And you know what? 
dance music doesn't have to do that. Uh, I have happily played music with people whose politics I despise for many years. <laughs> if, I, with, with, if I was going to be an absolutist and play only music with people whose politics they approved of, I'd be in my basement by myself, I think. You know, I mean, so I, I try to be quite uh, liberal about associating <laughs> with, with people and, and making friends on the basis of music rather than demanding that they adopt all my political ideas. I remember, I remember during the, uh, when I was, in, I, again, I'm going to bring it back to techno and, and dance music, but the, um, in the nineties and, and one of the, one of the two of the best clubs were in the North and in the North of Ireland and anyone and everyone that went there all agree. There is, there is no, there is no sectarianism. There's, no, there's just nothing but love for music and each other and the, no one gives a shit. It's about music and that's, it does transcend. I remember, I remember being a young guy and people telling me about that and not being able to get my head around how that could be true until I kind of started to experience those things for myself. Well, the same could be true and once was true of traditional music. You know, it became politicized on both sides during the Troubles. Mm -hmm. But when you come down to it, what is the folk music of, of the north of Ireland? You know, the dance music, the fiddle music, it's, it's, it's all the one. I mean, the people who, who were farmers back in the 19th century played the same tunes, sang a lot of the same songs, sometimes with different words. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And, and, and the idea that, that urban Protestant people in the North turned their back on their own culture because they associated it with nationalists was a tragedy. If your, if your only culture is is, is, is is kick the Pope bands, that's not culture. <laughs> that's not tradition of any sort I respect. There is an, a really interesting chapter in Kieran Carson's book, Last Night's Fun, where he sort of unpicks... Um, there's a chapter called The Old Orange Flute, actually, and he unpicks the lineage of several tunes and songs that belong to either community. And right. And those linkages, and it's a it's a great encapsulation of just exactly what you're saying, right? I think that was the greatest book ever written on traditional Irish music. Uh, Last it's night's fun, kind of amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it would take a poet to write it, and he he was a great one. Yeah, yeah. So, can we talk a bit about the Catskills Irish Week, or? Yeah, certainly. Um, um, as we mentioned, that East Durham was historically uh, an Irish resort town. If you go back to the, you know. 30s through the 60s, uh, the Irish working class immigrant population in, in, in New York wouldn't have had the option to take vacations in Europe or fly to someplace uh, nice. Uh, but people got out of the town in the days before air conditioning to someplace a little higher up the mountains where it would be cooler. Uh, so there was a, a range of spots all through the Catskills that different ethnic groups would congregate in. Uh, mostly the, the Jewish resorts would be down in Sullivan County uh, and, the, and the main Irish spot would, would be in East Durham and, and nearby in Leeds. So uh, the Irish musicians of New York would relocate up there during the summer as they would down to the Rockaway Peninsula on the beach, uh, another spot to, to cool down in the pre-air conditioning days. Yeah. So uh, the likes of Patty Killorn, one of the great fiddle players in, in New York from Sligo, was well known for playing in the Rockaways and uh, up in East Durham. And every traditional Irish musician that passed in New York would, would end up going to the Catskills at some point. 
it wouldn't necessarily have been the dominant music, the traditional music, uh, you know, show band stuff and Irish country western and Irish pop would would dominate, but there'd always be traditional music around the edges. Uh, Patty Reynolds, who I mentioned before, for example, would be hired to play on the porch of Mullins Mountain House, uh, which is now called the, uh, the Blackthorn, uh, and play with Charlie Mulvihill, an accordion player. And you know, they, were, they were being paid and they were given respect. But then you know, the dancing would be to a more modern sound later on in the night. Anyway, um, there, was, uh, there was at least one great uh, Irish traditional music house uh, up until not that long ago, uh, Kelly's uh, Brookside. And Ralph Kelly was an accordion player. His, his son, uh, Jimmy, is still with us, a uh, great Kelly drummer. Uh, so the, the musicians would make that their, their hangout. Um, there was, the, what led up to the Catskills Irish Arts Week was actually a 10-year series of concerts run by the Irish Arts Center in New York on Staten Island, a place called Snug Harbor. There's a woman named Becky Miller, who's now an ethnomusicologist and professor. She ran these uh, concerts for the Irish Arts Center, and she would have the best of traditional musicians, uh, all the ones from New York and visiting ones from Boston or Philadelphia and some acts brought in from Ireland. Uh, it was a fantastic uh, series of concerts uh, that eventually came to an end. Um, and she had another ethnomusicologist friend uh, who had a job with uh, Schoharie County, another Catskills County or adjacent to the Catskills. Uh, Janice Benincasa was her name. Mm -hmm. And she took Becky's model to run some festivals up there in Schoharie County, uh, which was not very far from East Durham and not all that far from New York City. So it was the same crew of people that would have been at Snug Harbor going up there for, I think, three years on a, a weekend festival. But after things died down at the festival, musicians would tend to follow Jimmy Kelly over the mountains to East Durham and play all night <laughs> over there. So when this three-year run came to an end, it occurred to people that maybe we were in the wrong part of the Catskills for this. Uh, and Janice uh, and another folklorist, uh, Nancy Gross, who now was with the, uh, the Library of Congress, uh, and a woman named Jana Sullivan, who uh, ran a restaurant near where the uh, Skahari Festival had been and got drawn into the whole thing. They, uh, they basically put together the idea for a week-long Irish Music Week in imitation of uh, the Willie Clancy School in, in Clare. And they pitched it to the uh, nonprofit organization in town in East Durham uh, called the uh, Michael J. Quill Irish Cultural and Sports Center. Michael J. Quill had been the head of the Transport Workers Union and famously uh, died uh, when he was jailed for leading an illegal strike uh, and was a labor martyr. Uh, so a lot of the fellows that uh, were uh, part-time residents of East Durham had maybe been bus drivers and members of the Transport Workers Union. Anyway, so the Irish Cultural and Sports Center was uh, the nonprofit that, uh, that agreed to take sponsorship of this week, which started quite small, um, just a, really a few dozen people and a handful of instructors, and, and we would move around the town each night in what, to, uh, occupying one of the, uh, the remaining Irish resorts, as, uh, as, as would be called then. Uh, there's a few of them now, there was a few more back then. And it grew and grew over the years. Uh, I was the so-called artistic director for the first six years of it. Uh, my responsibilities were uh, 
mainly to choose, choose the instructors and assign people who to play with during the course of the week. Uh, That's uh, quite a nice sort of nice thing. thing to be able to do, though, right? To pick it, your pick yeah. your musicians, you know. Quite stressful. Well, too. yeah. I, 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 did, I didn't control the uh, the purse strings, and I, and I was not burdened with too much administrative duties. I got to thank Janet <laughs> Sullivan and, and others for doing that. Um, did you have an approach? Like, did you have a, a as a artistic director? What was? Did you have a philosophy or an approach to it? Well, I wanted to have the real deal Irish musicians, uh, the best we could get up there for the week, uh, that uh, people would would want to come and, and play with, uh, learn from. Um, so actually, the, the first year, the total name uh, L.E. McCullough was supposed to be the artistic director, but he was also a playwright, and he had a play in a, a theater competition that, that was going to compete with the Arts Week. So he had to choose one or the other, and he chose the theater. Uh, so I, I filled in for him, and he had chosen some of the instructors already, and I filled in the rest. But the next year, when it was all up to me, at least uh, within reason, uh, I, I, I pursued Mary Bergen. Ah, okay. <laughs> I yeah. wanted. I, I said, you know, to her that she was, she was going to give us legitimacy, and indeed she did. She's been back uh, almost every year uh, ever since uh, to teach the tin whistle and, and play in concerts. Just a, um, a quickest of side notes because I do want to stay in the Catskills. I do want to ask you, and I don't think we'll get to it, but I read an article that you wrote on um, online, and you had mentioned around it was just around the the history of the harmonica in Irish music, and you had mentioned how Mary played such a vital role in making the whistle a uh, such a predominant instrument and not a novelty toy anymore. Right. Um, right. From a harmonica perspective. Who who is who is the Mary equivalent? I, is it you? <laughs> no, not at all. Um, I'd say you know the thing is that there's a variety of different ways to play the instrument and a variety of types of instruments. So it, there's no like one god of, of the Irish harmonica. If you were to talk about the most traditional sort of instrument in the sense that the one that most people in Ireland would associate it with, with the mouth organ, the simple tremolo diatonic mouth organ. The kings of that would be the Murphy brothers, uh, John and Pitt Murphy from South Wexford. Um, if you sp speak of the chromatic harmonica, Eddie Clark was the pioneer. He's no longer with us, but uh, Mick Kinsella, uh, who's married to Josephine Marsh and lives in Clare, he can play like Eddie Clark, but he can also play any other kind of harmonica style that you'd like. Uh, the, the most prominent internationally would probably be Brendan Power, originally uh, a New Zealander, born in Kenya living in England, <laughs> but, yeah, right. but very associated with, with, with Irish music in his own style, yeah. uh, completely inimitable to me anyway. Uh, he can play all kinds of music, um, and he makes his own harmonicas with different tunings. Uh, uh, it's just a, a genius of that instrument. And it's, I, as far as I know, that's his only instrument. Uh, okay. uh, and then you have um, uh, Rick Epping from America that's living in Sligo for many years, plays a, a unique style of diatonic harmonica, accompanying himself on the English concertina uh, and singing, great musician. Uh, then there's, there's other greats uh, like Noel Battle, who's won, I don't know how many All-Ireland Championships, another great tremolo player. Uh, there's, you know, there's more than you, that you think out there. It was uh, sort of an... an, an under the radar instrument, uh, and now there's this it's an international foreign legion of, of Irish harmonica players, I, I, myself included. Uh, the other day I heard on on 
uh, on Facebook, uh, on the Irish Harmonica site that's run by uh, uh, Cahill Johnson uh, of, of Galway, uh, a player I had met in Cavan a few years ago named Guillaume Varbos from France, an utterly amazing player. Uh, and he plays a, 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 a tuning system called Patty Richter that, that Brendan Power invented, but nobody plays it better than, than Guillaume. There's Joel Anderson from Sweden, a fantastic player. So I, I, I'm probably forgetting people here, you know, that I should be mentioning. But uh, Thank certainly, you. Uh, Thank you for listing those names, anyway, because it, it, it's often it's often hard to to just know where to jump off. Because I, like, I I love the sound of the instrument, but again, that happened to me with pipes. Like, if you don't have a jumping off spot, apart from kind of maybe some of the obvious names, and there wasn't to me as many obvious names. So just going back to the um, the Catskills, and you said you had um, Mary Bergen over for a few years. And Most it, years, yeah. And it it did lend a sense of um, integrity to the festival. Was it hard to convince Mary for the first trip? Uh, not that I recall. Uh, <laughs> and she came over with uh, with her sister Antoinette, unfortunately passed away a few years ago, uh, harpist and singer, uh, married to Joe McKenna, the great uh, Ellen Piper, and uh, we, we had an occasion all three of them, um, and. I, you know, there was a, a long, long list of, of, of great musicians who, who took part in the Catskills Week over the years. Uh, after I gave up the, the artistic director gig, uh, uh, there, was, there was a few others, My, Myron Bretholz for a year, and, and uh, Jed Foley, a uh, fine fiddle player, guitar player, singer for a couple of years. Then Paul Keating, an Irish-American uh, set-dancing revivalist. Uh, he was uh, the artistic director for a long number of years, and his, it, when he did it, his role included not just picking instructors and such as, as I had done, but also a lot of the administrative work. And for the last few years, it's been Ray Dean O'Flynn, a uh, great lady from, from County Cork, uh, living in the Catskills herself, who's been uh, in charge of the, of the operation. Do you, have, do you have any formal involvement at the moment? Uh, after I uh, gave up the, the, the administrative part of it, uh, for, for a couple of years I had no official role, but, and that was probably when I had the most fun up there because <laughs> I could just yeah. sleep late, uh, go, go to sessions and not have to worry about anything. But uh, Paul Keating uh, hired me back to, to teach harmonica and, uh, and tenor banjo, and I've done that as well for Ray Dean. And this year I was just on the site uh, during the weekend. I think when I spoke to you, we, you weren't sure whether it was going to be a virtual... Uh, festival or whether it was going to be online, and I see it's it's a it's a virtual festival this year. Yes, I'm not really sure exactly what's been planned. I had to talk to Radine and, and, and see. She'd asked me if I would record uh, something for the harmonica. So I said, of course, I would do that. Yeah, interesting uh, to so watch. We'll do, we'll, we'll do the best we can. Uh, it won't be the same, of course, and I hope we'll all be able to reconvene next year. And that uh, you know the, the the economic impact of this won't knock some of the important businesses out of the box, you know. Uh, it, it's a short season up there, and if you lose the whole season, it's it's tough to go on. Yeah, I think we're all in the same boat with, with that regard. We're just we're watching local festivals here do the same, local local pubs that we know do the same thing, trying to, well, it, it is literally time to reinvent the wheel for a short span of time so we can keep on going on the other side. So best of luck with the um, with that whatever um, involvement you end up doing. I'll have to have a look and see if I can if there's a if there's a lesson or something to jump in. I, I think from the positive is 
for someone for someone like us that live in on the other side of the world, yes, there's lots of resources here, but now that everyone's online, it's becoming very tempting to to kind of just yeah. dip into the yeah. best. Uh, not not, and I don't want to discredit anyone that's from the region, but you kind of the grass is always greener, right? Yeah. It's always more exciting or alluring to right. ooh, maybe I could do an online lesson in the Catskills, and it would be their evening session would be breakfast for here, yeah. so it all works out. <laughs> I like to do things with breakfast. Well, it, it, it can't be the same because to a certain extent what we do is is a bit of a fantasy camp you know it's, it's you know you're familiar with the concept of a of sports fantasy camp where over the hill baseball players would uh, of of note would uh turn up yep. uh, to give instruction to to uh, <laughs> middle-aged men who have dreams of playing ball i love that uh, i've never heard of that that is so <laughs> fantastic so that's exactly what it is uh, and that's what i want to go to so uh, the, the reason you have someone like kevin burke you know, if you can get him or somebody like that to teach is because everyone wants to be in his company. You want to say, I played along with Kevin Burke or Kevin Burke gave me lessons, you know, and it just, just listen to him talk is, is, is a thrill to, to some people. You know, well, to, is to me, he's a fantastic talker. It is, for uh, sure. So there's nothing to be beat. I mean, you can't beat the, the, the physical proximity to your idols. <laughs> Even if this is a small world, there are still stars and celebrities in it, you know. It's not going to feel the same when you... Like with Kevin, for example, when you say at the next session, oh, well, I got this song from Kevin Burke, but you know deep in your mind that was on a, a virtual Zoom meeting with 17 other people. It will still mean <laughs> something to you, but it, you, the inner feeling won't be there, will it? Yeah. The, the only downside of the Catskills to me was that before it started, I would generally go to Ireland once a year mm -hmm. uh, for a week or so. And then because of the limited vacation time on the jobs that I've had, uh, taking a week to go to the Catskills replaced the trip to Ireland for the last 25 years. And I've, I've only been over there a handful of times, uh, most recently last uh, last fall for a, uh, a wedding of a friend, Dan Gurney, an accordion player who was getting married uh, in, in Dublin. Mm -hmm. so, so it gave me a chance to visit my friends up in the north because uh, it, when I first started going to Ireland uh, in the mid-'80s, it was courtesy of friends I'd met through the Eagle Tavern sessions uh, chiefly Peter Grew, a piper from uh, North Armagh. And through Peter, I met a lot of other folks up there and went to a lot of great sessions. And, and uh, it, uh, it, was, it was, for me, a very special time. It was my introduction to Ireland. And it was just sort of by chance that it was in the north, which had a lot of problems, of course, at the time. The troubles, you know, it's nothing to be, nothing to be you know, joking about. But on the other hand, You'd remember yourself, Dom, uh, the difference between playing music in the North and playing music in the Republic or the Free State, as folks like Peter would still call it. There, was, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of tourists up in the North. Uh, and it, 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 people who played the music had a sense of, of uh, protecting something precious that was under attack. And they felt great affinity for each other and, and extended a great welcome to any visitors like myself who would come and join them. Uh, I felt privileged. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, thank you for taking the time, Don, to chat with us today. Um, would you be able to give us a last tune? Sure. Uh, I'll play a hornpipe. Uh, I think, I don't know, somehow or other, I gravitate to hornpipes. I think they work really well on the harmonica. Uh, so I'll try one. Uh, it has a variety of names. Uh, Dwyer's on Gossermore. Uh, 
the Waterford Hornpipe. Uh, where's it start? Don Mead. That is what tunes sound like on the harmonica. I, I guess to, to a lot of people, it's no surprise that 
that you can play those tunes. But yeah. it's not like the tin whistle or the island pipes or the fiddle, the the first instrument that that I would immediately think, oh. But then you look on the list of categories in the flag hill, and there it is, right? So. Well, um, we mentioned it during the interview uh, very quickly, but Don has a paper on the Balarney Star com site that he he publishes some things on there one of the papers on there is looking at harmonica and i'll post a link to this um but with within that intro of that paper he mentions about you know the tin whistle and harmonica are fairly inexpensive instruments and really probably classes a toy to as a toy to a great extent but then it wasn't it was because maybe the, the it was because of the mary bergens pretty much with the tin whistle anyway just transformed it into this this now staple like a recognized global staple of Irish music Dom you'll probably tell me there's, there's Mikko um, Michael Russell yeah 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 I guess so yeah, yeah. but the harmonica like, the harmonica to me right so I remember I don't know anything but I suppose that's a good indicator right to me there isn't someone where I'm just kind of going yes harmonica like that I'm iconic really, player yeah. like so I'm really looking forward to then now, with that extensive list of names that Don gave us to go, you know, getting stuck in and, and having a, a listen. Maybe maybe I'm totally on my own here. Maybe there are the Jimi Hendrix of harmonica and I'm just not aware. Maybe Don is it and I'm egg on my face now because I, I actually didn't know. Oh, he sounds like it. Yeah, that's why I'm saying <laughs> it. Uh, yeah, so that, that was really awesome. Yeah. Uh, thanks again, Don, for taking the time to do that. and. Yeah. And hey, thanks to our patrons, by the way. Um, I usually thank you at the start of the show. But yes, thank you so much. Um, we had a couple of patrons come over in the last couple of weeks. So thank you so much for that. Um, if you want to be a supporter of the podcast, please head over to patreon.com forward slash Balani Pilgrims. There's seven different, there are several different tiers that you can get involved in over there. Every penny counts, and uh, uh, it's really what keeps the show on the on the move. If you can't do that, please just share us around. Make sure you hit subscribe on the podcasting app or whatever you're listening to this on, because that all helps as well. And yeah, look look after yourselves. It's a stressful world out there at the minute. Look after your brothers and sisters, and do the right thing. All right, and see you next week. See ya. Hi, my name is Rosa. Please become a subscriber to the podcast. Thank you.